there. It's Gary Parish. It's Friday, July 6, 2018. Welcome back to the Eye on College Basketball Podcast. Matt Norlander is here with me. And I hope you guys had a nice 4th of July, even if Wednesday is the absolute worst day to celebrate the 4th of July. We should do something about that. You can't put a holiday rooted in excess eating, excess drinking, and blowing things up at night right in the middle of the week. It's dumb, but, like, whatever. It's over now. What's up, Norlander? You good? I mean, Parrish, we're recording this on a Friday morning. You sound like you are still recovering from potential 4th of July celebrations that are clearly over 36 hours old at this point. I don't think so. You know, if I'm recovering, it would be recovering from uh, actually last night. How about this? So my mother kept the two youngest kids, and we, like, just had to – it was amazing, like, how quiet the house was. And so, like, my wife got home, and she was like, hey, you just want to go grab something to eat? So we went and grabbed something to eat close to our home, and then we came back, and it was like, man, we have really nothing to do, and nobody is bothering us right now. And so we, like, just sat on the couch and watched uh, Office episodes on on Hulu or Netflix or whatever. It was, like, the most amazing – like, it was – I – I've totally forgot how awesome life is when you really don't have young children. You didn't even know what to do with your hands at that point, huh? We were like, it, it was like, and then we we slept in this morning. Like the past like 15 hours of my life have been like the best 15 hours I've had in a long time. Well, it's just because just my young children aren't here. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. And I am uh, very much appreciating this final stretch right now, my wife is due in September with our second child, and I know going from one to two is a game changer, and our two-and-a-half-year-old is, uh, is a ball of energy, and he is really starting to rebel in some shocking ways, uh, but I know once, once number two gets here, it's going to be a whole new deal, so we, we do get, like, every, every night, you know, we put him down, and we've got a nice solid block of three to four hours where we don't have to worry about the child. I know that's going to change in September. Going to three, I can't even imagine at that at this point. But uh, but it is funny you mentioned that because recently we were talking about how much life is going to change for the better, certainly. But it's going to be all sorts of ridiculous. And, uh, and so I might be leaning on you for a few tips once that time comes. Well, listen, get them out of your bed as quickly as possible. That's tip number one. That's the other thing that made last night so different than a normal night for us. Our kids still – they're in our bed. Yeah. Our, we have a four-year-old who even if he starts the night in his bed, he will eventually end up in our bed. And our you know, almost two-year-old is, is in our bed. Like, like, our, like, our, like I, I start the night in our bed and I middle of the night wake up with like a four-year-old foot in my eye. And I go upstairs to the guest room like that. That's the way we live. So, like, I know you don't live that way because you and I've talked about this yeah. off air. But, yeah, like whatever it takes to make sure they do not get attached to your bedroom is like a big, big thing. Yeah. We're not doing any sort of co-sleeping. You've got a scene right out of the Willy Wonka series, okay? You've got four people in a bed. I don't know how or why you even do this, but co-sleeping is absolutely not an option. My wife and I are both way too selfish about our sleeping habits. We don't even cuddle. Like, we're not even cuddlers in the bed. We've got a bed. We sleep on, you know, the far sides of it just because we love our space when we sleep. I have, Parrish, I have no idea, none, how you allow one child, let alone two, into the bed with you, and then you get evicted from your own bedroom almost nightly. That's absolutely ridiculous. Here's the way it started, I believe. Um, Both of my children 
were all of all, uh, all of my children have been born in basketball season. Uh, like uh, we've got a, a November, a December, and a February, and the two young ones are November and December, and so they are born and are babies basically while I'm gone. So I like I'm not here f- three four nights a week during basketball season. So my wife like doesn't mind. She like actually loves having them in there with her. And then they get used to being there. And then you can't get you can't get them out. Like I cannot get my children out of my bedroom. And so you're right. I I I, I sleep three hours a night in my own bed and another three in a guest bedroom. And then I'm up and then I start my day. That's my that that is my routine. That's why last night was so awesome. Like just sitting alone and watching netflix with my wife was like the best time i could have had so very very dad life there i get you though um all right let me let me be clear i love my kids and they take great instagram pictures but it does here's the thing about being a parent because people always try to talk about it in absolutes here's the truth it is awesome i can't imagine not having any of i like i can't imagine not having my boys all three of them but it also complicates your life like it makes your life it, it just complicates things. Everything is, is more complicated, and almost nothing is about you. Like one of my buddies who works at, at CBS uh, with me, Brent Stover, he's a single man with no children. And, you know, I, I, you know I, 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 we talk about this type of stuff all the time. And he like, he, like, wakes up every day and, you know, with – Work is work, obviously, and he's got to be there when he's got to be there. But outside of that, he can literally do whatever he wants to at any moment of any day. If he wants to wake up and watch TV or wake up and go back to sleep or wake up and go for a walk or wake up and read a book, every day of his life he wakes up and he does whatever he wants to do. And that that's like an, an amazing amount of freedom. But But the alternative is you struggle with like – you know, am I wasting my life? You know, who are these, where's, like, you know, you struggle with those things. But, like, what I told him, if you're comfortable being alone, I would never be comfortable being alone. I would feel like I'm missing out on everything. But if you're actually comfortable being alone, having the ability to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it, like, is 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 pretty incredible. I sense a longing in your voice, Parrish. <laughs> I just want to, like, lay down and watch Netflix by myself. That's it. That's all I want. No, I actually do. I, I actually get both of these lives that I'm describing because, like, during basketball season, sure. I'm, I'm in a hotel room three, four nights a week. And so I'm, I'm totally alone. And then I come home to a house with, like, people just throwing Legos at each other. The contrast is ridiculous. Did you know that Legos is not plural? It is always Lego? That's, that's ridiculous. That, don't, that sounds made up. I'm just telling you that's what it is. There's another one of one of those things that people always say, but it's just wrong. Uh, that's like supposed to be a plural, but it's not. You, like, um, mm, what you, is it? You, do you know if you? Because I know this because I did advertising for it one time on radio. If you if you went to Burger King and you wanted to get their most famous sandwich, two of them, how would you order that? All right, so I'm a pescatarian, so I haven't walked into a Burger King since 1997 or thereabouts, circa 97. I would say, okay, so the uh, hold on, let me let me let me figure this out in real time. So McDonald's has, dude, McDonald's has the Big Mac. <laughs> there are people laughing at me that I don't know this, but I never get this food. So that means Burger King has the Whopper, which is obviously this is a trick question. So you would say, can I have two Whoppers? 
No, Whoppers is incorrect. Whoppers is the little chocolate uh, thing, candy, like a Whoa. Whoppers candy. You're blowing my mind right. Are you kidding me? That's not. Is this is this a common misconception? Yeah, everybody orders two Whoppers, but Whoppers are chocolate candy. So I have it's no like idea what it is. Mal- then. Malted milk balls. Though that's that's what Whoppers are. So if you try to if you say I want two Whoppers, it means you want two malted milk balls. <laughs> then the people at Burger King would be like they'd probably know what you mean. But like still, the way you would properly um, make that order would be. I would like two Whopper sandwiches. Oh it's a Whopper. <laughs> okay, so I actually had the word right, but I get you. Okay, I thought I didn't even know the word correctly. No, you got it. It's Whopper. It's a Whopper. You have to if you can, on the radio. I was I was prohibited from saying um, you can go right now and get two two Whoppers at Burger King for ninety nine cents or whatever it was. You you have to say two Whopper singular sandwiches because Whoppers is trademarked by by malted milk balls. <laughs> I think I have the other word you might have been thinking about. A lot of people mistakenly say the phrase a myriad of fill in the blank. That's not what it is. It's just myriad. Just substitute. When you want to say like I have uh, like many, myriad is many. So you would say Parrish has myriad issues with being a parent. You're not a myriad of issues. Was that maybe what you were thinking? No, not even close. People misuse myriad a, a ton. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, we didn't plan to start like this. Hey, we're nine minutes in. You want to talk some actual basketball? <laughs> Should we hit the stop and no delete? Shot. This, start is, over? this is an old school opening for the throwback <laughs> hardcores, and we're keeping it. We apologize. So um, uh, earlier this week, you wrote a column about Kansas and Kentucky, uh, basically uh, stating that, that you know who, who, you don't care which one's number one, which one's number two, but they ought to be the top two in every preseason ranking um, that is to be taken seriously. And I, I completely uh, agree with you. I didn't know you were writing that until like, yeah. I found out you're writing it, like some inside like uh, office chatter. I, I sent an, You sent an email to our editor saying, hey, I'm going to write about Kansas, Kentucky. I sent an email to our editor saying, hey, I'm going to write about Kansas, Kentucky. But we didn't actually send an email to each other. That's right. So you wrote about Kansas, Kentucky, and I read it. And I was like, that's exactly right. They do have to be, in my opinion, first and second in some order. And then I said, okay, well, here's what I'll do then. I, I can't do that, but I'll like really go through it, like from an experience perspective, from a talent perspective, recruiting rankings, like just break down the roster every way you can do it, deep dive into all the numbers. And then I'll sort of have a column that says, okay, like when you, when you take everything into consideration, yeah, it's close between Kansas and Kentucky, but this is the team that should be first and this is the team that should be second. And by the time I got finished, I, I was just in, twisting myself and in, in, I didn't know which way to go. And I still don't at this moment. Do you have a – like a – is it clear in your mind which one should be number one and which one should be number two? I guess let – me, let me put it this way. Um, it, it, it's not always right what people think about who should be at the top of a ranking, but it is usually clear. Like, like people usually think they know who it should be, even if it's wrong. With this one, it's just not clear to me. I can talk myself into Kentucky and 20 minutes later com- like easily talk myself into Kansas. Yeah. Um, well, you have written a column about this. I've not read the column yet, which is for the betterment of this conversation, because uh, even though you haven't come to a, a clear-cut conclusion, perhaps I can talk it into one team versus the other. Now, we had Kansas – uh, you had Kansas in the in, as your number one team for a while, and then Kentucky, when it gets to Reed Travis, 
really enters the conversation, if not vaults Kansas in your eyes to be the number one team heading into next season. And then Kansas gets LeGerald Vick back, which was a fairly big surprise as far as I I was concerned. This was not something that, from my perspective, was really on the table. And even LeGerald Vick and Bill Self in the officially released statement was like, yeah, this thing was like done. Like we 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 had parted our ways, and then uh, Vic never signs an agent. Clearly, he did not think that going overseas or trying to get a two-way contract or playing in the G League was for the betterment of his life at this point. And here we go; he's got a spot open for him on Kansas's roster, and he is there. Um, I would have Kansas ahead of Kentucky. I'm pretty sure of it. Heading into next season. Um, the reasons why Parrish, and it's not by a, I mean, this is small margins here. Um, Kansas brings back two of its five starters, Yudoka Asapuki, LeGerald Vick. They were, they were never a top two player. I think on, on certain nights, Asapuki was definitely a top three kind of guy, although he was obviously a liability at the foul line. But you get them back, there are returning players of importance. And I guess more critically for me, like Kentucky has a really solid freshman class coming in. It's better than Kansas is, but Kansas has some good guys coming in. I think Devin Dotson's going to – actually, mark my words here on this podcast. Devin Dotson, by the end of his sophomore season, I think if he doesn't go pro, I think Devin Dotson will set up going into his junior season to be – Jalen Brunson-ish in terms of his overall impact and style in college basketball and him setting up to be a potential first-team All-American, if not player of the year. I have that much confidence in his ability. We'll see what he is as a freshman. Um, getting the Lawson Twins, but Dedrick Lawson in particular, is huge for Kansas. They were they were better than Kentucky last year. Kentucky brings some pieces back. I would trust the consistency of Kansas – which has been a one seed or a two seed. You have some returning pieces. Lawson was not really efficient at Memphis Parish, as you know, but he was productive and good. And honestly, if Kansas is going to be a top five team again and Lawson winds up as their best player, I mean, he's going to be in the running for player of the year. I think Lawson has a better chance of being better then Reed Travis, who I said on the previous podcast, like I'm in on Reed Travis. I, I think he's a very, very good college player, and I think that he can he can stand out with Kentucky. But here's the thing. With Kentucky's roster next season, which is very deep, very intriguing, I'm not convinced that Travis is going to be able to step in and have as much of an impact as Lawson is. Now, does that really have a huge overarching impact, Parrish, on, on whether Kansas would be better than Kentucky? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, all things considered, I would go Kansas just ahead of Kentucky. I wouldn't fault you if you went UK, but given how consistent the Jayhawks are year after year, and yeah, like LeGerald Vick's a very athletic, very good player. I I don't know if he'll start you know, more than half the games or not. That's to be determined. Kansas is so deep, Parrish. I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if we got to February and we saw, well, here's an analysis of Bill Self and how he's used eight different starting lineups this year. I think they've got that many options. So that's where I land. 
Kansas just slightly ahead of Kentucky. And then I think there is a little bit of separation between those two teams and the rest of college basketball. Again, as we head into the season, things will change once we play games. But this is an assessment and a projection of how we think these teams will line up come you know early November. So from a recruiting rankings perspective, Kentucky is, is clearly more talented. They have seven five-star recruits on their roster. Kansas only has two. Um the, the recruiting class, uh, Kentucky's is is better. Um, it, it's ranked number two in the country. Kansas's is ranked fifth. But I think Kansas has got the best NBA prospect on either team, and that'd be Quinn Grimes. Um, Kansas returns more. You know, they, they bring back uh, Azabuki, LeGerald Vick, like you pointed out. Those two, that's two guys that averaged at least 12 points per game. And then they've got other veterans as well via the transfer market, like you noted, Diedrich Lawson, KJ Lawson, also Charlie Moore. Mm-hmm. Kentucky does bring back, you know, two guys that average at least nine points per game. You know, guys that played major minutes in PJ Washington, Quade Green, and then Nick Richards is also back. Uh, the enrollment of of Reed Travis is 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 a big deal, and you know so it, it it basically comes i mean i mean do you like the talent or do you like the experience like what do you value um i i can like i can completely buy your argument for for kansas and the fact that they've been a top 2 seed like a million years in a row um probably suggests that they the, the jayhawks might be the safer bet um but like again kentucky can run out you know theoretically a a lineup that looks something like Ashton Hagen's, Quade Green, Keldon Johnson, PJ Washington, Reed Travis. I mean, that's strong. And the idea that they're probably, uh, you know, gonna have, they definitely have better roster balance, and it'll probably show up on the court. Um, you know, they like one of the things I noted in the column is that, in my opinion, the three best Calipari Kentucky teams are 2010, 2012, 2015, and one thing all three of those had in common was three of the top six scores on all three teams were non-freshmen. And given the return of P.J. Washington, the return of Quade Green, and the enrollment of Reed Travis, I think it's reasonable to assume that three of the top six scores are going to be non-freshmen, and that has typically been a good sign for John's teams. Very good sign. And, Parrish, what's so fascinating to me about these teams and what I'm excited about for next season is – and we get this with Kentucky annually, practically. But we expect it to be really good. And when you when you have that, normally, I guess non-Kentucky, non-Duke division, you have certainties about a roster. There are just things that you know, and that's why you're going to place these teams at that level. And to a certain extent with Kentucky, it absolutely is that. Because, you know, P.J. Washington, if he really, like, hits his ceiling – then Kentucky became really, really, really good. I, I, in terms of what P.J. Washington is going to be as a college player next year, it's going to be fascinating. And when we do our annual top 101 list, like I honestly don't know if we should have P.J. Washington 12th or 42nd. Like I don't know what kind of player we're going to get. I'm very intrigued by that. Quade Green as well. Like is he going to take a, a a big step up and be really, really good, or will the ability and speed and natural talent of Ashton Hagens overshadow that a, a little bit and stunt him? I don't know. With with Kansas. You've got these transfers that are going to be eligible. I, w- I would think, I would think Lawson is going to be Dedrick Lawson is going to be uh, a standout almost immediately. Charlie Moore, I'm not, 
I'm not totally convinced what's going to happen there. And again, with Kansas's depth and how many different lineups they can roll out there, it's also going to be intriguing. So I think what makes this a very fun push toward the start of next season is that these teams are expected to be really good, but we don't know how that is going to be assembled. Like, for instance, when I was writing the column, I thought, okay, who's going to be the best players on each team? Because you're right, Quentin Grimes is a very, very good player, a good pro prospect. I think it's very likely that he is a one-and-done player. Um, but is he going to be a top-two guy for Kansas next season? Like, you know, if you get into crunch time, we get into March, is Quentin Grimes going to be the guy that's going to be making the plays? Or will Vic evolve into a really go-to kind of guy by the time we get to the end of the season? Will you have... A situation where Charlie Moore steps up and is just as valuable as Dedrick Lawson. I don't know. And I think the same can be said for Kentucky because you've got these returning guys. Who's going to, like, is PJ Washington going to be the alpha? Will Quad A Green step in to be a really savvy kind of sophomore? Or will it be Hagens or anyone else in that class? So I don't know how the answer to that yet. But I think the totality of what they have with their rosters, talent plus returning experience, is why, and we're going to get to Gonzaga in a second, but it's why they separate themselves from the likes of Tennessee, Gonzaga, Nevada, Duke even. Um, it's very intriguing. Uh, we don't have all the answers. And one last thing, Parrish. We don't know, uh, personally from where we sit, Parrish, we don't know what Sylvia D'Souza's eligibility ish, uh, situation is going to be. As it stands right now, I guess he's on track to play for them, but given everything that was exposed in regard to his recruitment, it's hard for me to believe that he would be eligible, and yet that might be where where it heads. And if he is, you know, all eligibility questions aside, if you just look at his situation in terms of being available and, and, and capable of playing for Kansas next year, I think his inclusion also is a big notch in Kansas's favor because he will be a sophomore, and I think you'll see him become even more productive and, and even more essential playing alongside not just Azubuki but Lawson down low. Yeah, I would, and it's only an assumption, but I would assume at some point, and there's no need to do it now, and they're probably working through the NCAA still, but I, I don't see how D'Souza doesn't get at least held out of games yeah. uh, given what the FBI uh, alleges happened with his recruitment. Um, you know, as always, we'll see, but that is an X factor. Like, is he going to be available to them? And, and if, if not a meet, if not at the start of the season, um, when, if ever, um, I, I do think that that said, John, both, both John Calipari and Bill Self are going to have issues trying to find playing time for all of the players that are going to believe they deserve playing time. It's like a great problem to have, but it is an issue that you have to work through. But I think it's especially an issue at Kansas because they've got five players. I, I, I bet you there's no other team in the country that has this. They have five players who have averaged at least 12 points per game at the high major level already. Hmm. Do you think in any uh, – it can't be possible at another school. No, like is there a team coming back next year that had five players at the high major level average 12 or more a game? That's, I don't. Yeah, I don't even think there's probably a team that had five players average twelve or more a game. Uh, that's a great trivia question. I don't know, but I would not suspect that that is the case. You got five guys averaging not even just double digits, but twelve a game. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't think so. Yeah, because Azubuki averaged thirteen last season. Lejeune Vic averaged twelve point one. In Dedrick Lawson's uh, last season at Memphis, which was two seasons ago, he averaged nineteen point two. K.J. Lawson averaged 12.3 in that same season. And in that same season, Charlie Moore at Cal averaged 12.2. Five, 
five players. So you've got five players who have already been played major minutes at the high major level and have been productive at the high major level. And then they've also got, um, you know, a, a recruiting class with two top 25 guys, three top 40 guys, one of whom is a projected lottery pick. That's Quinn Grimes. So if you take the, like, I mean, that, that's just five guys who think they ought to be averaging double figures at the high major level, plus a projected lottery pick. And there's just no way they can all get what they probably think they ought to be getting. And again, this is an awesome problem to have, but that that's not always the easiest thing to work through. It's why John Calipari went to the platoon system in 2015. It wasn't, I don't want to speak for John, but I, it, it never appeared to me to be about this is the best way for us to maximize anything other than um, it's not the best way to maximize our potential as much as it's the best way to, to like keep people like, like happy to, 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 you know, you'll never convince me Carl Anthony Towns playing 22 minutes a game was like the best thing for Kentucky that season, even though they did go 38 one, the, the, the platoon seemed to be rooted in, we got to find minutes for, we, we can't have, three McDonald's All-Americans playing four minutes a game. We've got to find minutes for these guys. And so um, it is an issue that, that these guys have to work through. Again, great problem to have, but it's, it's, it's an issue. Yeah, one more thing on Kansas. Um, they're going to have a solid backcourt, but this is going to be a drastic change. And for Self and his staff in particular, you know, they ha- it will be the first time in basically five seasons, four seasons, that they don't have Frank Mason or Devontae Graham involved. And uh, – they were obviously like Graham was all American level. Frank Mason won national player of the year. And even before they got to that level, they were important role players. Like even from the start, like they, they were factors in the rotation. Uh, and Mason was a very, very, very good four year player overall start to finish. Um, so it's been, a, it's been a long time since that was the case. In fact, I think the last time, I think the last time that neither of them were on the roster I, you know, Frank Mason was in the Wiggins class. So think about how long ago that was. Because it was a whole thing where he was the least heralded recruit in the class and he won player of the year. So that would have been 2012, 2013. Hold on. Let me, bring up the, let me bring up this Kansas roster real quick here. Hold on. Jeez, who would have been on that team? It's been that long, though, since a Frank no, Mason or Devontae Graham was on the team. if I remember correctly, it was – he was the – there were six players in that Kansas class, and he was the least heralded of all of them. Dude. All right, here was here – was, yes, you're right. And here's the Kansas roster. Here's who got minutes. First of all, I love Jeff Withy as a college player. Jeff Withy was a senior. Ben McLemore, man, he was a freshman that year. I was always let down by his college career. I have no idea what Ben McLemore is doing now. And he is – I hope oh, he's – I, I hope he's, he's – sti- Is he in the league? stealing money from the Memphis Grizzlies. Is That's he what really? Ben- he's on a roster? He is wow. terrible. But you know what? Good on him. And you know what, though, Parrish – it, it just goes to show you, and I, I don't mean to slip down like a separate uh, avenue here, but if you are identified as an NBA level talent and a top ten kind of high school player, you will just if you have that kind of first of all, I, it's my belief that if you have that athleticism and that ability, and it shows well in workouts and practices, and not even necessarily in games, you will continue to get opportunities. I think from a physical standpoint, Ben McLemore clearly is still a top 100, top 120 NBA athlete in the world. And because of that, 
as you say, he's on a freaking roster right now, but he he has not lived up to what he was expected to be basically since he was a freshman at Kansas. Um, so anyway, that team had Elijah Johnson, Macklemore, Withy, Perry Ellis, back when Perry Ellis was a mere 29 years old. And that was, it's been that long, though, since Kansas hasn't had Mason or Graham be a factor. And so keep that in mind as we go into next season. They can still be really, really good, but Bill Self, for the first time in a very long time, is not going to be dealing with one of those two players kind of guiding the way on the floor during practice. And I think that will be something that he has to adjust to. You're exactly right about the Macklemore. He was a heralded prospect coming out of high school and was a good player at Kansas. And and then gets drafted in the lottery, stinks in Sacramento, but you know was like I I don't know how old he is right now, but like when the Grizzlies signed him last summer, the rationale was like okay we know he's been terrible, but is it possible that's just the byproduct of being in Sacramento and having fifty different coaches? You know at, he's twenty five now, so at the time he was twenty four. Let's take a flyer on a twenty four year old former top 10 recruit who like looks the way you want a basketball player to look six, five can really run, can really jump. And they signed him like, you know, whatever it was, $8 million contract, $7 million contract. And like he had already shown at the professional level that he cannot play. But because of where he was out of high school and what he did at Kansas and the way he looks and runs and jumps, some, you know, they were like, Hey, let's give it a shot. And he just still he still stinks. He still just cannot play basketball. Not good. But making that money, man, it really goes to it goes to show you that's wild. Um, but there you go. Okay, so you have Kentucky at one right now. Yeah, I just kept him there. I don't even know if it's right. Like, you know, like that's the whole point of the conversation. Like, I'm not even sure it's right. But Kentucky won Kansas too. And then the you and I agree. I guess we should point this out, and then we can transition to, to Gonzaga. You and I agree that Kansas-Kentucky got to be one and two in some order. Not everybody actually agrees with us. There are at least two other teams um, that people think should be under consideration uh, for, you know, for that top two. One of them is Gonzaga, and the other is Duke. And as I explained in the column, the reason I don't put Duke in that category isn't because Duke lacks talent. You know, I, I, I think Kentucky probably only has – I mean, who knows, but maybe two first-round picks in next year's draft. Not sure any of them will go in the lottery. Um, Which has never happened under Cal, by the way, at Kentucky. Right. It's never happened under Cal at Kentucky, but it might next year. And Kansas probably only has one first-round pick, Quentin Grimes. Um, And Duke's got like three projected lottery picks, right? So Duke is super talented, but they don't return a single player who averaged even four points per game last season. And... There's just no team built that way that's ever won a national championship. Some have come close, but none's ever done it. Perhaps Duke will be the first. I won't rule it out, but that's why I wouldn't put Duke in the conversation for for preseason number one or number two. It's just they're so reliant on freshmen, have so little in terms of experience that, again, if they cut nets in April, it'll be the first team built this way that's ever actually done it. And then the other option is Gonzaga. And I could certainly make the case for, for Gonzaga. And um, they, they enhanced their uh, roster yesterday when they secured a commitment from Gino Crandall. And you wrote about that. What kind of impact can he have, you think, at Gonzaga? 
Crandall's a good player, Parrish. You know, I'm not going to BS you here. I didn't watch 26 of his games the way I watched Marvin Bagley III play 26 games last year or anything like that. Um, but I did actually watch when Gonzaga almost lost to North Dakota. Crandall played at North Dakota and uh, and really almost pulled off a road upset there. And I love the fact that he almost did that with a bad North Dakota team. And then Mark Few and his staff realize he's going to be a graduate transfer. They're like, get this dude on our campus right now. So uh, Gonzaga wins out, beats Minnesota, by the way, where uh, Crandall is originally from. That's uh, a bit of a stinging uh, stinging bite there for Richard Pitino and the Gophers, who could really use someone of his talent and caliber. For Gonzaga, he's not going to be a top-four player, I don't think, but he is a good combo guard, can play some of the point. I think Josh Perkins, who obviously will return and be a senior and run that Gonzaga offense, he has some soldier surgery in April. I think Perkins has a good chance at being a top 20 type of player. If you told me Josh Perkins was a third-team All-American at the end of the next season, it would not shock me one bit. I think he's absolutely got the capability to be that kind of player. But Crandall can be a nice backup option. Big picture, he's anywhere from he's probably going to be anywhere from the fifth to the seventh most important player on Gonzaga's roster. And I think that has overall big picture importance to Gonzaga standing in the rankings. It's potential to get a number one seed to make another final four, the second in three years. So he was probably considered, we've talked about this plenty Parish. like so many of these transfers just don't mean that much. But I, I do think if you're like, if you look at the 600 plus that transfer in a given year, if you fall in that like top 25 range, then yeah, wherever you go, you will have an impact. If you're one of the 25 most important, if you if you average more than 15 points, you know, four boards, three assists, Crandall falls into that category on a bad team in a one bid league. I still think that he will go in, have an impact, and you can't underestimate how good. Mark Few has been in bringing in transfers and, and converting them into even better players. Perhaps that happens with Crandall. Like maybe he becomes a top three guy on that roster. I don't think that'll be the case, but it's certainly possible. And it's why I I think I would go Nevada three, Gonzaga four. I still like Nevada's roster more. Nevada's loaded. And I maintain that if Nevada had been in the tournament every year for the past eight years made a couple of sweet 16s and done this, then they would be close to a consensus top three team. But because they're just sort of a, an up-and-coming kind of program to a certain degree and they needed a miracle to get to where they got to in the tournament, people just aren't as willing to throw themselves out there the way they are with Gonzaga. So I would go – my personal top five would be Kansas, Kentucky, Nevada, Gonzaga, Duke at five. But Gonzaga's got a lot going for it. Crandall thing will mean a lot, and um, I'm excited to see what Few does with that team. They should win, as I wrote in my little uh, newser. This will be – I think they'll win at least 28 games, Parish, next season. And if they do that, it'll mark the seventh straight year where they've won at least that money. Many of those, obviously, they've won 30-plus. To your point about Mark Few and transfers, uh, Gonzaga's leading scorer last season, Jonathan Williams, my little homie from Memphis, um, was a, a, a transfer. And uh, – wild so i'm sitting there a second ago talking about kansas has five players on its roster who have already averaged uh, 12 points per game in one season or another at the high major level and wondered if any other team like a did you know has that i said i don't i, I would be surprised and like did anybody even do it last year and gonzaga almost did they had five players average at least 11.6 points per game so they spread it around pretty good there. Uh, five players between 11.6 and 13.4. So there's Gonzaga, a team that almost did what um, what I Impressive. seven ago said was basically but They impossible. didn't do it. It wasn't 12. 
<laughs> it wasn't 12. They did not do it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they, they had a, they, they were pretty close and I'm with you. They're going to be terrific again. And, you know, if they're in the final four for the second time in Mark's career, for the second time in school history, um, it will not be surprising to me. You watch any summer league? You know what, Parrish? I haven't yet. And in fact, uh, we're going to be at Peach Jam next week and it is kind of an annual thing. Well, we'll go to the Peach Jam, go out for a late dinner and we'll always be there with some media people, maybe a couple coaches and summer league will inevitably be on. Wherever we go out and be like, oh, yeah, that dude was literally just in college basketball a couple months ago. Now he's balling out in the summer league. So I haven't, but I will say um, I was so thankful. So last night I was uh, – I've actually been watching uh, – I've gone back and watched The Shield. I haven't seen it uh, since its original run. So that's the one show that's like highly acclaimed I never got to. So I'm watching uh, – I'm on season – early season two of The Shield. So I'm watching The Shield on Hulu and I see our, our good buddy Kyle Boone tweet a video of Grayson Allen and Trey Young getting to, into a little bit of a scuffle. And I was so damn thankful that I did not have to write a thing – about this, because if that had happened on February 26th or March 14th, halt the presses, it would have taken over our days. Uh, and it wasn't even like a huge, it was really just like a brief little thing. But you could not have picked two other players while in college to manufacture a bigger clickbait machine than Trey Young versus Grayson Allen. And by the way, Grayson did give Trey a little bit of extra, a little mm-mm on that. So uh, I did catch that. And but other than that, I haven't been following it too much. We are in the uh, the early parts of it, but I know that you have, and perhaps are a little surprised by how some college players suddenly suck in the NBA. It's wild. Trey Young and, and Marvin Bagley both suck suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, first on on Grayson, um, he played well last night, and he did have that moment with Trey Young. Uh, when I did that NBA draft show a few weeks ago. Um, with CBS Sports HQ, I, I was on set with Raja Bell and Rip Hamilton. And when Grayson got picked, and I, I found this interesting, they said, you know, all the stuff that he went through in college with the tripping and like, you know, like the intent, like whatever was happening with him, they were like, that won't be a problem in the NBA. Like you, you NBA players don't mind that. He's like, he's like, everybody was like, Rip Hamilton was like, I would like to play with Grayson Allen. And Raja was like, me too. Like, they, you want that. The, the point they were making is you want somebody that whatever it is that makes Grayson Allen be Grayson Allen, that, 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 that's valuable at the in the NBA in a way that maybe it's not in college. Like, they, they suggested that his issues, not necessarily that they would go away, but that they, they just wouldn't be a big deal in the NBA. Like, and that, you know, people in his own locker room would, like, like him and appreciate him for, for – like being whatever it is he's being. So I, I thought that was interesting because I'd never heard anybody say that before. Um, as for summer league in general, it's wild because it has become like a thing and it hasn't always been this way. Like, I don't remember eight years ago, summer league, like being a thing that people attended and that, that people watched, but they have like 14,000 people at, at, at some of these Ridiculous. games. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Uh, I, I might be overstating it. It might not be four. But how about this? The entire lower bowl in Salt Lake City was sold out last night. Entire lower, lower bowl in Sacramento has been sold out. And I think, you know, in, in, in Sacramento, people wanted to come out to see uh, Marvin Bagley. And though he did have a, a nice performance in his debut, 
yesterday. Tell me if in your entire life you thought this would ever happen. Marvin Bagley played 29 minutes in a basketball game, scored one point. It's never happened to him before, ever. Never. That seems impossible. Like he, he could be, if only because he's totally the type of player that would just get a stick back dunk or an yeah. offensive rebound and dunk. The idea that he would be on a basketball court for 29 minutes and score one point is is bananas. And then the story of summer league so far is probably this guy who was the story of college basketball, Trey Young. He's been terrible. 12 of 52 from the field, three of 24 from three. His first two shots in summer league, both air balls. I mean, he is, you know, I don't know that you should be that concerned because, like, unless you think Trey Young can't shoot, then these shooting numbers, like, shouldn't bother you too much. But he ain't made hardly anything. Three of 24 from three, 12 of 52 from the field, getting pushed around a little bit. It's certainly not encouraging. Like, you know, that's a Hawks franchise that had Luka Doncic and moved him for Trey Young and then immediately watched Trey Young go out and, and stink up. Uh, you know, the first three games of his summer league, one of 11 from three in game one, one of five, from three in game two, and one of eight from three in game three. I, I got two. Th- I got two responses to this. One is if you are a Trey Young skeptic, the initial returns on summer league play. And I know people listening to this podcast, we have some Trey Young skeptics. Um, you look at how his field goal percentage overall and his three-point percentage basically since the start of February really took a significant dip from what it was versus the first you know, 20, 21 games of his, his college career at Oklahoma. And you see this and you think, oh boy, okay, this could, uh, this could really have truly been an aberration for the first you know, two and a half months of the college basketball season. However, my other point is, I refuse to put too much stock into summer league play, particularly in the first week. And I I don't know. I I can't get I can't draw these massive conclusions to summer league play. I'm sure there are dozens of cases over the years where there have been guys that have been been just kind of whatever in summer league play and gone on to become really good players. I'm sure there were some guys that stunk in summer league and then turned into an all-star. There's got to be at least a couple of cases of that. So not saying Trey Young will necessarily do that, but it is obviously interesting once because it's so close to the draft. So you spend all this time talking about, writing about, evaluating who's going to go where. They get picked, and then within essentially two, two and a half weeks, these guys are in, a new, in an NBA uniform playing, and now the games are, are broadcast on television. You get some quick evaluation in a pro uniform. You can see what they're doing. Um, remember, they're still going to have training camps. There are still plenty of things to be sorted out, but... Uh, but it is interesting to see that Trey has not clicked yet right away. And then Bagley, who just does not seem bustable. I don't see how he's not good to uh, to have the game that he did. And then um, the other young, like the other one-and-done guy that, um, you know, was a top-five pick, uh, Jaron Jackson, he actually has been been pretty good. I don't know if you saw his first game. Yeah, it was ridiculous. His first, you could Dude. not have a better first game than than Jaron Jackson Jr. had. Impossible. Dude, he was nine of fifteen from the field, eight, eight of thirteen from three point range, <laughs> including one from like forty four feet. It was ridiculous. How about this? At at Michigan State, he in his first game as a professional, he had a better game than any game he ever had at Michigan State. He wow. took thirteen three pointers. I know. 
Steph Curry averages 10 per game. Jaron Jackson just went out and took 13 in his first pro game and made eight of them. Yeah, which is great for him, but it also is like, okay, we're in summer league here. Like, he's right. never taking 13 three-pointers. And I, would you take that bet that in his career, Jaron Jackson Jr. never takes 13 three-point attempts in a game? Oh, I, I said the next, the following day on radio that that will be the best shooting performance of his entire career. <laughs> like he'll never have another eight of thirteen from three game ever. Yeah, and uh, and so they they were in Utah. That was in the Utah Summer League. Do you know who led the Utah Summer League in scoring? In term, uh, well, I I don't actually. I I mean, are you getting to something that I should know here? No, I don't think you should know it. Okay, so who was it? Your homeboy Derek White. Oh yeah, boy, he is. Uh, he is, is. But see, here's the thing. Am I remembering correctly? You did the yes. story on White, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Derek White, uh, real, real quick. So Derek White had no D1 offers coming out of high school. Excelled at D2, uh, then goes on to Colorado and is a one and done at Colorado as a senior. Turns into a draft pick and was similar. His projection, his ascension, I should say, was similar to Jerome Robinson at Boston College this year, except Derek White was 29th, I think, in last year's draft. So he went from like a 50 to 75 overall kind of candidate to someone who vaulted in the first round. Robinson, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, he was considered probably a draft pick, and then he goes in the freaking lottery to the Clippers. But Derek White, who is now a second-year player, that's to me, that's what's interesting is to see how the guys who come back for the second year and play in summer league, how they do versus the freshman, or I should say first-year rookie players in summer league overall. But Derek White, is uh, he is a hell of a story, man. I mean, he was a scrawny, nothing kind of player coming out of high school, and now he is in the right system and thriving with the Spurs, and uh, it's great to see him doing what he's doing. He's really one of the best stories in the NBA. Okay, so we've covered Netflix, Hulu, a little basketball, summer league in the – Derek White story. You think we're done here? Yeah, man. We also covered our personal lives, our children. We've got <laughs> we've got a lot of that uh, taken care of there. Now, okay, so it's Friday. I want to thank the listeners. Okay, we got some cool subscription news. Like we just people continue to listen to the podcast in the off season. You're all awesome. You're fantastic. We love doing this for you. We understand that on a week to week basis, like there's not a ton of college basketball news, but there's enough that warrant these podcasts. So we super appreciate you and we'll continue to do this. But next week we are going to the Peach Jam uh, in Georgia slash North Augusta, South Carolina. So perish. Like we know how this goes. So I'm thinking I mean, if you want to try and do one down there, we can, but you know how this is going to be. Like, if you'd rather do a wrap-up of stuff that happens there, like, we can commit to one if events down there warrant it. If not, we'll do one as soon as we get back, and we'll we'll talk about the things we saw and what we experienced. I think we could probably pull one off one afternoon, right? Because the 17-and-unders play in the morning and then not again till night. And then the 16 and unders are in the middle of the day, as long as the schedule is still the same as it usually is. Right. And we could probably we don't have to watch every 16 and under game, unless I'm gonna, you know, discover another young stud like I usually do. Yeah. So you usually discover some five star that's been on the radar for two years. And think, you know. <laughs> my favorite, whatever, was Mickey Mitchell. I'm sitting there watching 16 and unders, and I'm like, man, this kid's awesome. Man, I, I don't know why more people don't know about him. And I Google him, and he's like ranked fourth in his class. Yeah. And he's, he's now at like UC Santa Barbara or something like that. I don't, he's still in college, but yes, he is. He yeah, was at he's one bounced, point. He's bounced around. His his his. It, it, that way, I saw peak Mickey Mitchell. You did. I saw. I saw him at his best. It hasn't gone perfectly since then, but uh, there's always next season, I guess. So yeah, like Norlander said, appreciate everybody uh, continuing to subscribe. The numbers we got this morning were like I, su- honestly surprising to me. Definitely. Uh, encouraging and, and surprising and, and humbling. So thank you 
And shouts to Devin Downey, shouts to Chester, South Carolina, shouts to Terry MF and Teagle, the legend. And remember, um, you know, if you haven't subscribed, please do so. You can do it via Apple Podcasts. Rate it favorably. That matters as well. Five stars with nice comments. That's all we ask. And we'll do our best uh, to uh, get back together uh, in North Augusta, South Carolina, and record another episode. Maybe uh, talk about whatever it is we're seeing at what might be uh, the last Peach Jam uh, college coaches are ever allowed to, to attend. We'll see. But anyway, we'll talk to you again next week. Till then, take care.